Please stand with me for the reading of God's word. Luke chapter 2, verses 25 to 35. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation, revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Thank you. Please be seated. Pray with me. Father, I thank you for the privilege of reading, of studying, and of hearing your word. I pray that you would, by your Holy Spirit, give us ears to hear. I pray that my words would reflect yours, and that ultimately it would be yours that each of us hears today. For Jesus' sake, amen. A couple weeks ago, our family drove down to L.A. for a short road trip. On the way back, we found out that I-5 was closed indefinitely in both directions because of snow and ice over the mountains north of L.A. So we took a detour inland, and our planned six-hour ride turned into a 10-plus hour drive back here to the Bay Area. Needless to say, there was a lot of waiting involved in that car ride. But I think my family actually did a great job of it. Our kids weathered unpaved, muddy roads and rest-stop bathroom lines and miles-long traffic jams valiantly. They had to wait much longer than they'd originally expected before we finally got home, but they did it well. I wonder how we'd have done, though, if we'd had to wait much, much longer. What if traffic didn't delay us just an hour or two here or there? What if we'd had to stay overnight somewhere? What if our car had broken down in the desert? Waiting isn't easy, but it's tolerable when you know that the end is in sight. But what if you have no idea when or if it's coming? How long before you just resign yourself to the possibility that maybe you're never getting to your intended destination. Of course, that'd be kind of melodramatic for a half day's drive from LA. But that experience of waiting, and maybe of giving up on waiting, was all too familiar for many of his people by the time we meet Simeon in Luke chapter 2. We don't know how long Simeon had been waiting, but Luke hints that it had been a while. And that by this time in his life, Simeon had just one thing left 
on his bucket list. The coming of the Christ that God had promised hundreds of years ago. God had promised it. Simeon was waiting for it. And he waited for it with unrelenting anticipation. Simeon's part in Luke's gospel also speaks to us today, reminding us that the promise of Christ's coming also compels us, much like it did Simeon, to wait well. And this reminder provides us our two points for today's message. God has promised that Christ is coming, and this promise compels us to wait well. Now, the main point of Luke's account of Simeon's meeting with Jesus in the temple in Luke 2, 25 to 35, is simply this, that God has fulfilled his promise of the coming Christ. And this snapshot, this this brief glimpse of Simeon, for just a few minutes, this snapshot of Simeon only makes sense in the context of a much larger story, one which is captured in just a few words when Luke writes that Simeon had been waiting, he says in verse 25, for the consolation of Israel. What had Simeon been waiting for? For something which would console, which would comfort the nation of Israel. Maybe Luke, in writing it this way, is thinking of Isaiah 40, where God gives a promise of deliverance and hope to the people of Israel. In Isaiah 40, he writes, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Isaiah's declaration and Luke's description point us to the bigger story of the Jewish people, of a people who had been set apart, delivered, and provided for by their maker, but whose moral corruption and religious disloyalty to him had eventually led God to punish them through military and political devastation, which by Simeon's day had continued for over 600 years. So what does all this tell us that Simeon had been waiting for? Well, through Luke's account, we get a glimpse. We see that Simeon had been waiting for the consolation of Israel. He had, in verse 27, it says, he had been told that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And then it's finally, in verse 30 and 31, Simeon, it's finally Simeon's turn to triumphantly declare that he says, my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples. The Christ that Simeon had been waiting for was someone who would be Israel's greatest deliverer. So what Simeon proclaimed was that this baby, this one-month-old child, was the fulfillment of God's promise of a king who would restore and deliver his people and reign forever and ever. This is the main point of these few verses from Luke 2. God had promised that the Christ was coming and the promise was finally fulfilled in the arrival of Jesus. Simeon is not the main character here. He is the lens which helps focus our attention on the main character, who is Jesus himself. But I think there's also something more to this passage for us because we are more like Simeon than we might realize at first. That's not only because we can resonate with his joy 
at the sight of the little baby Jesus. It's also because God has promised us that Christ will come again. And why is Jesus coming again? To finish what he started. See, in his first coming, Jesus began to fulfill the promises of God to send a king. But how he came and what he did defied virtually every expectation of what the Christ would be like, what he would do. As Christians, we understand that Jesus came not to be a political savior, but to save his people from a deeper problem. The moral and spiritual corruption of our hearts and the just wrath of God in response. We believe that it was for the deeper problem of sin that Jesus was crucified and resurrected. This is what it means that Jesus came to be the Christ, that he came to save us from the power and penalty of sin and reconcile us to God. But that's not the end of the story. After his resurrection, Jesus ascended into the heavens and now sits in glory at the right hand of the Father. And one day, Jesus Christ is coming again to judge the living and the dead and to renew the whole world for his glory. Put another way, just like Simeon, we now live in an age where we can look back and see in history the record of God's faithfulness and his mercy. But at the same time, we are also still waiting for God's promise of a coming king to be fulfilled. And this is where we come to our second point, that the promise of a coming Christ compels us to wait well. See, the promise that Christ is coming again should compel us, like it did Simeon, to wait well. That is, to wait for Christ's second coming with hope and anticipation. When we read in between the lines of Luke's description of Simeon and Simeon's own words, we discover a man who could not rest until the promise God gave him had been fulfilled. Again, in verse 26, Luke says that it had been revealed to Simeon by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And then in verse 29, we, we get a sense of what that meant to Simeon because he says in verse 29, Lord, as he holds the baby in his arms, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. Like Simeon in the first century, we as Christians today have been waiting a long time for Christ to come again. But are we waiting like Simeon did? Simeon couldn't rest until the Christ had come because he longed for a deliverer for Israel, a king who would bring about the restoration of a nation that had been wrecked by its own sin and the judgment that they incurred. If we have believed in Christ, we should also be waiting like Simeon. Why? Because we are hoping for an even greater restoration. If we turn to Revelation 21, verses 3 to 5, we see a glimpse, we see a word picture 
of what that restoration, that final and glorious restoration is really going to be like. Because in Revelation 21, the Apostle John records that he heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne, on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. What are we waiting for? We are waiting for the new creation. When we will live with and enjoy God forever in the new heaven and the new earth. And creation itself will be renewed and restored and delivered from the effects of sin. And that's something worth waiting for. But I suspect that if you're like me, you're not always waiting for it. What keeps us from longing for the coming kingdom the way that Simeon did? Again, if I were to reflect on my own heart and my own life, I have a few ideas. And maybe you're like me. Maybe um, there's a kind of idolatry that comes into your heart where you enjoy the good things of this age and of this world and and settle for them. Maybe there's a way that you look to those things and enjoy those things and they're enough. That maybe you're not waiting so hard anymore. Or perhaps, for some of us, we have a kind of past tense Christianity. That is, we think of salvation and faith only as something that's already happened. I trusted already in a Christ who died already and was already raised again so that I have already been saved. But we don't think about faith and we don't think about salvation as something Jesus is still doing, which it is, and which he will finally do when he comes again, which it is. Or, again, reflecting on my own life, maybe there's a way that some of us we wait, but we wait in a kind of disinterested way. We focus on the here and now because we secretly believe or believe just in a part of our hearts that the kingdom come is, well, it's just for the future. That's for later. Whether it's a kind of idolatry or bad theology or just kind of a compartmentalization why does it matter? Why does it matter whether we wait for the future or not? Why does it matter how we wait? Well, it's because what we believe about the future impacts not just our eternal trajectory, but it impacts how we live in the here and now. On the way up from L.A., actually on the way down too, our family got to listen to an audiobook together. It's something we like to do on long road trips. And this time we found one that our family really enjoyed. It's a book called Everything Sad is Untrue by Daniel Nairi. 
And in the book, Daniel Nairi tells a story out of his own childhood memories of how he, his mother, and his sister became refugees in the early 1990s. First, forced to flee for their lives from Iran because of his mother's Christian faith. Then, eventually living for over a year as refugees in Italy. And finally, taking asylum and starting a new life in Oklahoma. Nairi illustrates from his own life how what we hope for affects how we live here and now. And I thought I'd share it with you. He writes, Imagine you're in a refugee camp, and you know it'll be a year or more before anything happens. It's going to be a tough year. But for the person who thinks, at the end of this year, I'm going somewhere to be free, a place without secret police, free to believe whatever I want and teach my children. And you believe it'll be hard, but eventually you'll build a whole new life. That's like winning the lottery. It's like saying you'll get $100 million at the end of the year. But if you're thinking every place is the same, and there will always be people who abuse you and about how poor you'll be at first, the sadness overtakes you. It's like saying you'll get a soup and a sandwich at the end of the year, and that's it. Here's the thing. You'll both have the same year at the refugee camp, but one of you will be looking around with joy and anticipation, wondering what you can do to prepare your kids for the new world. And the other will be slumped in the courtyard, surrendered to the idea that it's all one long river of blood. I don't know which belief is true. Nobody does. But what you believe about the future will change how you live in the present. What are you waiting for? What are you hoping for? Does the promise of Christ's second coming and all that will come with it fill our hearts with anticipation and with hope? Does it change how we live in the present? Because it can and it should. So how do we cultivate this kind of longing? There are so many means and opportunities that God has given us to stir up hope and anticipation, to learn to wait well. But today, I'll just mention three in particular. And to make it hopefully a little easier to think about and to remember and to reflect on later, I'll engage a little alliteration. God has given us means through our weeping, in our worship, and in our witness. In our weeping, we cultivate hearts that wait well in how we weep. And what I mean is in our willingness and ability to grieve the brokenness of our world. In our ability to embrace the heartache that comes with the realizations that we are not home yet, we have opportunities untold to cultivate hearts that wait well. Think with me again about Revelation 21.4. What's it say in Revelation 21.4? It says that 
God will be with us and he will wipe away every tear from our eyes. Death will be no more. And there will be no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain, because the former things have passed away. What makes this promise sound so good? There's hope in the promise that Jesus will make all things new because we live in a world tainted by sin, full of loss, brokenness, disappointment. We know what it means to have a promise that will be no more death, no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain, because we live in a world where there is death, there is mourning, there is crying, and there is pain. Authentic Christian faith knows how fallen this world really is. So it grieves sin, brokenness, and pain without wallowing in despair. So when we make room in our lives for weeping and heartache, we make room to wait well for the coming of Christ and for all things to be made new. Incidentally, I think this affects more than our own hearts. In our parenting for the moms and dads who are here, how do we respond to our children's disappointment and pain? How do you respond? Do we leave room for weeping? Or do we try our best to protect them, which I'm not saying is a bad thing. Do all that we can to insulate them. And when they lose something, we just hop onto Amazon Prime and buy a new one. Can we instead invite the Holy Spirit to use our tears and theirs to point us and our children to a new kind of longing for the new creation where moth and rust and thieves and racism and COVID and cancer and sin and death will be no more. We cultivate hearts that wait well in how we weep. But we also build up lives that wait well by how we worship together. And by that I mean by the prayers that we pray, by the songs that we choose to sing, by the ways that we even structure our worship together, whether it's on Sunday mornings or in our community groups or in our family worship. I think specifically about some opportunities that our family had last year. Uh, early in the pandemic, of course, Wellspring wasn't meeting in person yet, and so last summer, we had the opportunity to join uh, my brother and his family down in the South Bay at their church uh, for worship uh, several times outdoors. And their church is a Presbyterian church, which observes somewhat more formal liturgy uh, than we have here at Wellspring. And it was in that liturgy that I found for myself a deep and needed reminder that I need to wait well. In the Lord's Supper, uh, they celebrate the Lord's Supper just like we do each week. 
And that, like our church, they read from 1 Corinthians 11 as part of an uh, invocation of the Lord's Supper. And after the elements are passed around, the pastor reads from 1 Corinthians 11. But before they take of the bread and the wine, they have a responsive acclamation. It's called sometimes the communion acclamation or the memorial acclamation. And here's what the pastor says. He says out loud, let us proclaim the mystery of the faith. And the congregation responds together. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. Now for me, as someone who hadn't been a part of this particular liturgy before, this acclamation just grabbed my heart. It reminded me, it made me realize that the Lord's Supper isn't just about remembering. It's also about anticipating. And that simply follows the pattern of Jesus and the Apostle Paul. Matthew 11, verse 29, you'll recall that Jesus said, I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Similarly, Paul in 1 Corinthians 11, and we hear it uh, when we read from 1 Corinthians 11 each week, but he says, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And it's almost like my ears got adjusted and my heart got tuned and I heard through the memorial acclamation what was implicit in Jesus' words to his disciples on that first Lord's Supper night. And in Paul's words to the Corinthian church, the Lord's Supper is both about remembering what Jesus has already done on the cross and about anticipating and looking forward to that new day when we will eat and drink together with the Savior. So we build up lives that wait well when the elements that we choose, the words that we say, the songs that we sing, and even how we listen and participate, not passively, but actively in worshiping together, when those things all work together, they can build us up to be people who wait well for the coming of our king. Of our king. And finally, today I think we can learn to wait well through our weeping, through our worship, and through our witness. We nurture souls that wait well through our witness, through longing for Christ's kingdom in a way that fuels a passion to make Christ known to those who don't know him yet. And what's more, being a part of faithful gospel witness fuels a delight in his coming kingdom. We long for his coming, and this fuels a delight to make him known among those who don't. And when we make him known among those who don't, it fuels our longing even more. Simeon hints at that in verses 30 to 32. Because when we come back to Luke chapter 2, we find that Simeon, even in his vision of how the Christ has arrived, goes well beyond the boundaries of a political deliverance 
for Israel. He says in verses 30 to 32, My eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. Simeon's words remind us that the coming of Christ was and is universal in its scope. It's not merely regional or national or personal. And as a result, we proclaim that the hope of Christ is a unique answer to the fears and the pain and the wickedness and the brokenness of sinners, of all sinners in a sinful world, for all the world. Just like Simeon, we proclaim this is a revelation for the nations, for the Gentiles, for all the peoples. And when we engage others with this gospel hope, we ourselves will also grow in our hope for the coming king and for the kingdom that the gospel proclaims. As many of you know, our family returned to the U.S. about two years ago after having lived and served in Southeast Asia among the Dai people for almost a decade. The Dai are devoutly Buddhist people whose cultural life has traditionally revolved around the village temple and seasonal religious festivals. Over our years of living there, as we grew in friendship with the Dai teachers and the office staff that we worked with who were involved in our education project, the most profound contrast that struck me between our life and theirs, and there were a lot of differences, but the most profound contrast that struck me between our life and theirs was not our income levels or our educational backgrounds or what languages we spoke. What struck me most as we shared life with these friends was that for the Dai Buddhist, life is lived in fear. Fear of angry spirits, fear of bad omens, fear of sickness and death. Now that's not there on the surface, but as we grew in relationship, it was lurking there right underneath the surface. When they bring incense to the temple on festival days, when they pray to the Buddha at the village shrine, when they choose wedding dates or a child's name, it is not out of hope. It's out of fear. Over time, it became increasingly clear to me by contrast what a treasure we have in the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is good news. And that good news filled our hearts with longing that these friends would be rescued out of darkness into light, out of fear and death into hope and life in Christ. So both the gospel message itself and the work of bearing witness grow in us the hope and anticipation of Christ's return. We proclaim what we hope in. And as we do, we grow in the hope for what we're proclaiming. And hey, side benefit. That's not a side benefit at all. Many times we might even find that we welcome others to join us in that hope.
in that hope of the coming Christ, of the coming King. And they learn with us to wait well. One of my daughter Audrey's favorite book series is Mo Willem's Elephant and Piggy books. Some of you might be familiar with them. Each one of these little storybooks shows us a humorous exchange between Gerald the Elephant and his best friend, Piggy. Now, a few weeks ago, we borrowed Waiting is Not Easy from the library. And in Waiting is Not Easy, Piggy comes up to Gerald and tells him he has a surprise for him. But it's not quite here yet. As we turn the pages, Gerald gets more and more worked up with impatience. Waiting is not easy. He tries to get hints about what the surprise is. He complains. He groans. At one point, he gives up and walks away. But then he comes back. So we pick up the story midway. As Gerald the elephant returns and tells Piggy, Okay, I will wait some more. And Piggy reassures him, it will be worth it. Groan, says Gerald loudly enough to knock Piggy over. And then Gerald starts to panic. Piggy, we have waited too long. It is getting dark. It is getting darker. Soon, we will not be able to see each other. Soon, we will not be able to see anything. We have waited. We have wasted the whole day. Well, um, says Piggy. We have waited and waited and waited and waited and waited. And for what? For that, Piggy says, pointing upward. And as he looks up, Gerald sees the surprise that Piggy had waiting for him. A brilliant, awe-inspiring night sky. And he falls silent. Finally, Gerald says quietly, this was worth the wait. Let us proclaim the mystery of the faith. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. Please join me in prayer. Father God, teach our hearts to wait well for the promise of your son's return. Shape our hearts, I pray, to long for his coming. For that day when we will live with and enjoy you forever in the new heaven and the new earth in a renewed, restored creation 
when all things will be made new. Plant in our hearts the hope and the anticipation and the longing and the heartache that you intend. For I pray in Jesus' name, amen.